0: Welcome to the Academy Revival Podcast. This is Drew, resident of the Montevilla neighborhood and huge fan of Academy Theater here with Doorman. What's up?
1: Hey, Drew. Feels like it's been a while since we recorded. October was quite the whirlwind.
0: Oh my goodness. I know. Um, (laughs) Screenings left and right, incredible programming at Academy. I had the flu, so good and bad, but... um, it was it, it lived up to my personal
1: expectations for yeah. the for the month. I think I might have been at a theater in Portland every day of the week for seven days straight. Nice, yeah, it was. I think it's a record for me. It was, yeah, it was a little exhausting, um, but really beautiful um, and awesome to see people at the Boogeyman screenings, the Nosferatu screenings, Mad Monster Party was great, super fun um and this is my favorite time of year this pivot point mm, between yep. the you know pinnacle of October and then the hard turn into November where we usually play noir movies for our noir November series so that's where we're going to start and that's what we're going to talk about today cuz we're going through our November 2023 revival program and we have 6 movies to talk about um 3 of which are from the classic film noir period um, and we touched base a little bit before we started recording. You're pretty new to film noir, right?
0: Yes. I'm as new to it as it is like old and defined <laughs> of a genre. It's um, in college. I watched some staples. Um, so obviously that's been a decade or more now. And it's just something that is is so hard for me to break out of the habit of, you know, watching new stuff, watching TV, um it really is a huge benefit to have curation done by a place like academy where i know i can just show up watch a movie not have to like the to get over the hump of putting it on myself have yeah. the um kind of like pre seal of approval from a trusted source, which would be, um, <laughs> would be you and, and your team at Academy.
1: And they're really designed for the big screen. They're very theatrical. Um, and just in case, you know, you or any of our listeners don't know, film noir movies are crime dramas uh, from the 40s and 50s. Uh, and, uh, anything after that, we usually call a neo-noir from the sixties and seventies, um, and eighties, um, nineties, keep going, keep going. Sure. Yeah. The neo-noir period sort Brick, of is whatever everything that is. after. Yeah, <laughs> totally. No, it's definitely a neo-noir. Um, and, uh, and they're usually, you know, noir, French for black, they're dark movies. A lot of German expressionists, um, came over, uh, in Uh, during World War II came to Hollywood and it's a stylistic revolution using the camera much more creatively but also telling these very down-to-earth um crime stories but they're not always crime stories we'll see that with our first movie it really is an aesthetic tone um and a dark a darkness that's deep uh within the movie that um is hard to classify and there's a lot of people who argue about what is noir and what is what is not noir and it's interesting to talk about it but i think it's a feeling that you can see within a lot of movies and whenever i think of you know what is noir for me personally? I always think of just a protagonist searching throughout a city. Mm. And it, to me, it's hard to watch certain noirs that are less urban, and I love a lot that aren't, but to me, there's something urban about a film noir, and just searching and wandering through a city trying to find an answer to something. To me, that's just like, when I think my in my gut, that's how I define a noir. Um, but Anyway, uh, let's get right into the noir movies we have to talk about, Uh, first starting with uh, our uh, November 3rd through November 9th week with 1945's The Lost Weekend. What hospital is this? Alcoholic ward.
0: Come on, I need that liquor. I want it and I'm going to get it, understand? I'm going to walk out of here with that quarter rye, one way or another.
1: We're both trying. You're trying not to drink, and I'm trying not to love you. Winner of four Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director, and Screenplay, The Lost Weekend. From Billy Wilder, the director of Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, Some Like It Hot, The Apartment, comes this classic noir drama starring screen legend Ray Land. The man with the x-ray eyes reap the wild wind. An uncompromising look at the devastating effects of alcoholism, The Lost Weekend, was almost never released because of the poor reaction by preview audiences unaccustomed to such stark realism from Hollywood. It has since gone on to be regarded as one of the all-time great dramas in movie history, featuring Milan's haunting portrayal of a would-be writer's dissatisfaction with life that leads to a self-destructive three-day binge. Filled with riveting imagery, this masterpiece co-starring Jane Wyman, All That Heaven Allows, won Oscars for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Screenplay, and was nominated for Best Cinematography best editing and best score oh well yeah, so this this movie did a clean sweep in 1945, and it also won the Cannes Film Festival and was the first movie in history to win both the Academy Award for Best Picture and the Grand Prix at, at Cannes. Oh, interesting. Yes, yeah, yeah. so it was just a really groundbreaking film in 1945 because it dealt with alcoholism, and, and no film up until that point had really seriously pushed this subject matter to the mainstream like this movie had.
0: So you had me at like tortured writer uh, character that's <laughs> that's kind of a um, a movie and cinematic um, formula that always that always works for me as an on and off like aspiring writer person myself. Kind of like this this tortured writer, alcoholic stereotype, uh, like a Hemingway type figure is just like kind of a character that um, I always gravitate to stories about that. And maybe, yeah, the kind of frankness uh, when you were talking about the the key features of noir filmmaking, uh, li- quite literally, like black and white character yeah. archetypes and portraying heavy subject matter like this, maybe focusing, we'll see, I'll see, um, uh, equally on a character study versus sort of like the plot Mechanics, yep. um, yeah. like solving a a mystery or something, absolutely is is unusual for for the time.
1: Absolutely, and and this this movie is is really a companion piece to the uh, famous noir film Double Indemnity. So if you haven't seen Double Indemnity, it gets, does get plain a lot. We've played it. It's a it's a fantastic. It's it's one of the first noirs to really come out and boom ignite the movement. Um, I think Maltese Falcon from. From 41 was the one that really put that hard-boiled edge right. that I think most people associate with noir. That's but definitely I th- what I watched in, in film class. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. yeah. And I think this is a really interesting one the last weekend because a lot of people debate whether this is a noir or not. And I'm coming out here with this is my first one of Noir November 23. <laughs> and I'm saying, hey, this is definitely a noir Um, and, uh, the reason I think a lot of people are, are saying it's not a noir or is it a noir is because it's, it's not crimey. It it has some criminal activity, but it doesn't have that hard boiled edge. And I think that a lot of people just associate that all film noirs are like pulp detective (laughs) films. But um, that's not necessarily the case. There's many different subgenres, and that's just one subgenre of film noir. And this is a really great example of a drama noir that has that bleak edge, that has that colorful cinematography, that has Ray Milland, who we saw in uh, the Big Clock in 2022. I I played that one in November, and this is a very similar role, but it's before that. So in some ways, um, this movie isn't quite just on-the-nose noir, but it's 1945. The The movement really, you know, bursts in 1946 through 1952. I'd say that's like the peak of hmm. the classic period. So we're in this n- early... Uh, time frame here where there 's still not all these tropes that have just been hammered over and over and over again, and so there are some different ideas people are playing around with and Billy Wilders is such a master of the noir genre to me it 's almost like anything he touches has to be somewhat associated with his genre because he made double indemnity right before right. and in some ways this movie is about his experiences working with the great crime writer, Raymond Chandler. Mm. And that's who he sees as the protagonist whom Ray Milan plays as the, the writer who's struggling with his alcohol problem.
0: Yeah. It sounds um, like they could hope uh, they, there's some interesting opportunities there. Cinematography wise, like you mentioned to kind of, the the modern version of it would be like the psychedelic drug trip or something but i'll be curious how experimental they get kind of capturing the 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 haze and the fog of of the alcoholism the title is very evocative of of lost and in um missing chunks of your of your memory so i'll be curious how they kind of capture that with editing and with cinematography
1: and I, I really think that the movie, what it's sort of become known for throughout history, is its ability to deal with a a, a really serious subject matter, um, but to do it in a way that's not just super downer, super bleak, super heavy handed a hundred percent of the time it goes there. But at the same time, Ray Land is so charming and so fun to watch. Um, he's such a great actor that, um, you're not just, um, freaked out the whole time and you're not just on edge, uh, edge of your seat because he's having such a hard time with his alcoholism.
0: Sounds great. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to, to start my noir journey, re- reignite it <laughs> with this movie.
1: And last thing I'll just say that, um, As you watch The Lost Weekend, be sure to stop in our little hallway to Theater One and check out a telegram from Ray Moland from 1948 that he sent to the Academy, or one of his associates probably sent uh, to the Academy uh, when we had our grand opening.
0: Oh, wow. That's that's super cool. Yeah, some memorabilia. Yep.
1: All right, so that's The Lost Weekend. Um, And the second part of our 1945 double feature for the same week, November 3rd through November 9th, is a little movie called Scarlet Street. So you keep it to yourself. You walk around with everything bottled up. Yeah, that's right. That's the way it is with me, too. You gotta have money to make money. Capital. Are the boys at the Acme Garage cut me in on a half interest Just if I can put up the money. How much do they want? Oh, three or four thousand? Yay. Well, for cat's sake, I'm not talking about chicken feed. Use your imagination. A box office hit Despite being banned in three states, *Scarlet Street* is one of legendary director Fritz Lang's finest American films. When middle-aged, milk-toast, crisscross Edward G. Robertson, *Double Indemnity* rescues street-walking bad girl Kitty, played by Joan Bennett, from the rain-slicked gutters of an eerily artificial backlot Greenwich Village, he plunges into a whirlpool of lust, larceny, and revenge. <laughs> As Chris's obsession with the irresistibly vulgar Kitty grows, the meek cashier is seduced, corrupted, humiliated, and transformed into an avenging monster before implacable fate and perverse justice triumph in the most satisfying downbeat denoment in in the history of American film. Dan Duryea, as Kitty's pimp boyfriend, skillfully molds a vicious and serpentine creature out of a cheap, chiseling tin horn the new york times packed with hairpin plot twists and bristling with fine directorial touches and expert acting scarlet street is a dark gem of film noir
0: kudos to you on um however um, you you sourced that description because i feel like i just got the full vibe of the experienced uh crisscross and kitty and uh <laughs> the don derriere is that is that what it was uh dan durier dan durier yeah so, <laughs> just just the evocative names and the um kind of like CD descriptions there were very um uh, did a great job of setting the scene
1: yeah, I think that description was from the Kino Lorber Blu-ray, mm. um, which just came out, and we got the new restoration for them. So this this DCP looks really good, um, and this is a noir that nobody debates about whether it's a noir, and it really has a special place for me because this was the first film noir I ever watched. Mm. Um, it was exposed to me when I started out at the Academy back in 2014, and it just ignited a fire within me, and I just went to movie madness like every day day for months and just went through 1940 to 1949 and just watched as many noirs as i wanted to from those years and i just had a great time diving in and stuff but this one's from 1945 as well like lost weekend and it's really yeah genre defining um so these film noir movies were, were really not called film noir at the time it's a retroactive genre that we're putting on but this one has all the hallmarks and one of the big hallmarks is the German expressionism. So we do have a German here directing, Mm -hmm. Fritz Lang. He's escaping the Nazis, coming to Hollywood, and trying to bring that German expressionist sensibility through the filtered lens of the Hollywood system and getting really frustrated and What he does is start his own independent distributing company um, with the husband of Joan Bennett, who's the lead actress. So this is an indie noir outside of the studio system. And they're able to do a lot of things that they couldn't typically do in the big studio-bound films creatively and stuff. But the general plot is that Edward G. Robinson, who's amazing in Double Indemnity, so there's a lot of connections to that this week... Um, is a cashier and he's very lonely and he's sort of unhappily married and he's just walking home kind of drunk one night and he sees this woman getting attacked by a man and she's very beautiful and he just immediately falls head over heels for her and the woman thinks he's a famous painter because he tells her that he loves painting. He doesn't want to tell her that he's just a lowly cashier. And so she thinks, oh, this is a painter. He sells his paintings for all this money. I'm just going to lure this guy on and take all of his money and so the plot thickens from there i don't want to spoil it too much but it's a really great greenwich village 40s vibe to it uh it's 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 a really beautiful film and it's this it's dan duryea is uh kitty's boyfriend and he's a great character actor from the noir uh the this noir period and he's really amazing to watch
0: yeah maybe another hallmark of this type of movie is either intentionally or sort of um, subconsciously mistaken identities, um, and, yeah. and sort of allowing. I mean, it's just a, a classic dramatic um, device, allowing someone to think you're someone you're not, and how as the audience waiting on you know the edge of your seat for it to play out for the person. You know, it's a rom-com trope. It's a, yeah. it's any kind of um, any kind of relational drama. Totally, um, when somebody's withholding key information from from the other person, um, it's funny that the stature of um, someone who talks about art, the first assumption would be that they're probably making good money from it. But I'll see how r- believable that is in the context of, of the movie. Um, definitely a different a different time but I feel like that character would be sort of you know assumed to be like an alternative like um, uh, down on their luck artist hippie type uh, in the in the future but um, yeah he's obviously projecting some kind of confidence
1: yeah um, I'll let you sort of (laughs) discover that but it's a really good combination with The Lost Weekend because The Lost Weekend is really sort of an A picture you know one it won the Academy Award. It's, it's a, it's a big, profound movie for that year. Um, and this is a smaller indie film that, that did really, really well at the time. It didn't flop or anything by a super creative director who's sort of frustrated and, and needing an outlet for, you know, his, 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 his creativity. Um, and so it operates a little bit more as like a b picture but it's just only in relation to the last weekend would i say the scarlet street is really a a b picture but i think as a Mm -hmm. double feature for the week pairing them together i'm really happy with how it worked out and um uh, just specifically with Scarlet Street, Kitty is is a really great f- uh, femme fatale. So she's definitely a femme fatale. Um, and the movie is based on a book called Le Chienne. that came out in 1931 that literally translates the dog. to <laughs> the bitch. Oh, <laughs> well,
0: and, and yes, or the dog. Um, it, it, but but yeah, that's yes. that must have been the context they were going for. Yes. Yeah
1: cool so that is scarlet street from 1945 excellent uh so week two we have the third movie in our November 2023 series uh orson wells is touch of evil from 1958 captain you won't have any trouble with me you bet your sweet life i won't about this, Vargas? He's been wishing he and that wife or he's never been born. Vargas's wife? This is Mexican territory. What can we do? This policeman's job is only easy in a police state. That's the whole point. You're supposed to enforce the law. What did you do with her? Where is my wife? Directed by Hollywood legend Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, The Stranger, The Lady from Shanghai, Touch of Evil is a film noir masterpiece whose Hollywood backstory is as unforgettable as the movie itself. Starring Charlton Heston, the big country, Ben-Hur, Janet Leigh, the Manchurian candidate, Psycho, and Wells himself. This dark portrait of corruption and morally compromised obsessions tells the story of a crooked police chief who frames a Mexican youth as part of an intricate criminal plot. With its iconic ticking bomb opening shot, shadowy cinematography by Russell Metty from Spartacus evocative score by Henry Mancini and memorable supporting turns touch of evil is a stylistic triumph that stands the test of time
0: yeah so this one this is probably in the context of noir films I don't know how high its stature is but in the context of its filmmaker Orson Welles and 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 um, cinema in general this movie almost uh, transcends, at least for me, even the genre. Um, so, yeah, so, I'll yeah. just
1: I'll put that into context for this is kind of the nightmare on Elm Street okay. of film noirs because a lot of people say that this is the masterpiece that ends the classic era. If Maltese Falcon is the masterpiece that started it in 1941, we have Orson Welles sort of pouring his guts out here into a crazy mayhem of film noir in 1958. And famously, um, the studio just totally mucked with it at the time, Hmm. and uh, we're going to be playing the 1998 Reconstruction that's a partial reconstruction based on the famous 50-age page memo that Orson Welles wrote the studio after they edited the film with them pleading to re-edit the film according to his wishes. And you can get copies of the memo online. It's pretty amazing.
0: That's a hell of a memo. Um, that's what you alluded to at the beginning of the description, that the the Hollywood story was is salacious or whatever.
1: Yeah, it's, it's more than just the fact that the studio mucked uh-huh. with it so much. Um, this movie really hinged upon the involvement of Charlton Heston, who was just you know in 1957 when they filmed it this was his year it's in between 10 commandments and ben-hur so he's hot he's very very hot oh yeah and he, yeah, he says, there exactly yeah <laughs> um and he if he says he wants to do something like this gritty crime movie then it gets done and it gets done big um and so janet lee also right before psycho so the cast is fantastic and this is a this is a complicated one. I'm really glad that I'm not pairing another film noir with this um, this week because this is a full meal. Hmm. Um, you, you don't really want to watch another movie after this. This is a tricky one, and it takes a couple watch watch viewings to really get deep into it. But I think that there are a lot of things that people can immediately um, resonate with just right off the top of the bat. And uh, Orson Welles is just one of them. And another famous part of the backstory is that, um, you know, Orson Welles had really um, squandered his reputation at this point with the Hollywood heavies. Um, And the only way they agreed to let him direct this movie, which would become his last Hollywood movie um, was for him to do it for free. So he oh, well. didn't get paid to direct this movie. He got paid to act in it. Um, but it's an insane role that he's acting in, and the movie is just insanely directed. So it's it's a triumph and a masterpiece on a lot in a lot of different ways. And
0: an ego trip, obviously, obviously that a certain like larger than life Hollywood figure at the time would would uh, <laughs> would off like that was a trajectory. That that yeah. we saw with a lot of actors and, and directors and heavyweights. And so that's kind of fascinating from a career um, examination standpoint uh, to see him yeah. kind of like want to get everything out um, and then not even have final cut or, or have complete control over it. So it does sound like a juicy um, Hollywood drama.
1: <laughs> and uh, we're going to be pairing that with a... Something a little bit different. We're going with when Harry met Sally from 1989. I need to talk. What happened? What's the matter? Harry came over last night. I went night. over to Sally's last night. Because I was upset that Joe was getting and married. One thing led to another. And before I knew it, we were kissing to make and. Make a then long story short. We, we did, did it. it. They did it. It's <laughs> I'm difficult. I'm too structured. I'm completely closed off. But in a good way. And I'm gonna be 40. <laughs> when?
0: in eight
1: years brimming over with style intelligence and flashing wit this splendid and irresistible film from director rob reiner is one of the best-loved romantic comedies of all time featuring dazzling performances from meg ryan billy crystal and carrie fisher and an oscar-nominated screenplay by nora Ephron. when harry met sally is an explosively funny commentary on friendships courtships and hardships of the modern age Will sex ruin a perfect relationship between a man and a woman? That's what Harry, Billy Crystal, and Sally, Meg Ryan, debate during their trip from Chicago to New York. Eleven years later, they're still no closer to finding the answer. Will these two best friends ever accept that they're meant for each other, or will they continue to deny the attraction that's existed since the first moment when Harry met Sally?
0: So this is kind of like romance rom-com season i feel like in addition to (laughs) noirs november and leading into the the holiday stretch uh, i feel like this is a perfect kind of segue in into that like genre of filmmaking this one has obviously some some iconic scenes the the diner scene but that conversation that topic that you know you you referenced like the uh, I feel like my whole adult life, I've uh, at various points debated that mm-hmm. very topic. The way men approach, you know, um, um, traditionally like approach friendships versus women and, um, you know, taking all gender viewpoints in, into consideration. It's just like a iconic debate and an iconic like... Um, uh, it's not a rom-com in the sense that like you necessarily know what to root for and that it, it feels contrived like the formula that would spring up you know um, later after these these movies become marketable but yeah this one just feels really grounded and really naturalistic in their in their conversation and just they're they're so charismatic together
1: Yeah, I I definitely think that that's what most people um, recognize in this film is that the screenplay by Nora um, Ephron is really, really strong. And she worked on it for many years, developing it with Rob Reiner um, and really took the time to develop it into uh, a full fleshed out version to what it is. Um, And it's very strong um, and really funny. And, you know, I rewatched it for this Um, And I was, you know, surprised how... Hooked into the plot that I got, and how you know, usually I only watch 20 to 25 m- minutes in prep, and mm-hmm. I watched about 40 or 50. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'll just watch five more minutes, oh, I'll just watch yeah. five more minutes. You know, it really hooks you in. Um, and I was, you know, kind of charmed at the beginning because it starts um, at the University of Chicago, which uh, just happens to be located in uh, Hyde Park where I grew up, so it, it was kind of cool just to see 80s Hyde Park for a, a split second, um, and then they drive and the rest to the movies in new york uh, but uh nora efron also you know she was a director she did sleepless in seattle you've got mail yep the um, meg
0: ryan tom hanks yeah. um, movies that would follow this and I, yeah.
1: and I think this one's a little stronger because of the lack of tom hanks hmm. that that's just my personal bias but i think billy crystal here um is a is a cre- crucial com- component to the success of the movie
0: Yeah, he has obviously a different energy. Like Tom Hanks is famously sort of an everyman, but Billy Crystal is closer, um, you know, controversy aside to like a Woody Allen type everyman (laughs) where he represents like a more slightly more neurotic, but slightly less conventionally. Like Tom Hanks is trying to play less... Appealing than he really is. I mean, sure. he is a, a very handsome movie star. Whereas Billy Crystal is more believable as as kind of an
1: unconventional um, male lead. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be exciting to see this with a a big crowd on the big screen. I think a lot of people have watched this movie privately and and hasn't really played that much publicly. So it, it'll be interesting to see how a crowd. Uh, reacts with it
0: yeah it's almost um in this uncanny valley of timing where um maybe these types of movies don't get replayed a bunch but it's not it's not old enough to be uh, a classic i mean it 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 is old enough to be a classic but not in the noir like you know not a 70s 80s um, type classic and so yeah i think it's just finally reaching that stage where Um, people will get a chance to to see it with a crowd that's that's going to be an interesting experience
1: yeah it's interesting that you know Rob Reiner has been such a well-loved director who gets played around town quite a bit you know stand by me just gets played every year and stuff but this one is a really strong film from his catalog that for for whatever reason uh, I just feel like just doesn't get played as much yet everybody is familiar with it especially the deli scene yep. like you talked about and <laughs> that'll be interesting to watch with the room full of people <laughs>
0: yeah yeah intentional i mean it the scene is supposed to be awkward and uncomfortable and that should just be magnified by being around other people watching them be awkward and uncomfortable <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right so that's when harry met sally um, now we have our third and final week of the month um we have uh November 17th through November 23rd starting off with stop motion classic from 2000 it is chicken run I don't like gravy Rocky I'm coming from the academy award-winning creators of Wallace and Gromit Up will be down before you can say mixed vegetables <laughs>
0: Dare to dream. There's
1: a better place out there. And get
0: ready to fly.
1: Put your head between your knees and... Kiss your bum goodbye. Chicken Run. We mustn't panic. We mustn't panic. Featuring unforgettable characters, incredible animation, and all-star voice talent, Chicken Run is an instant classic from the Academy Award-winning creators of Wallace and Grummet. While the chickens on evil Miss Tweedy's farm... Dream of a better life. A clever hen named Ginger is hatching plans to fly the coop for good. The only problem is chickens can't fly, or can they? (laughs) Every escape attempt goes foul until Rocky, a smooth-talking all-American rooster, crash lands in the coop. It's hardly poultry in motion when Rocky (laughs) attempts (laughs) to teach Ginger and her fine-feathered friends to fly, but... With teamwork, determination, and a little bit of cluck. Okay. Ooh. Yeah, that, that's number three. The, fear, the, the fearless flock plots one last daring attempt in a spectacular bid for freedom. Wow! Wow, yep. that was a
0: lot of foul shit. poultry emotion. Yeah, and then and <laughs> that then. was a lot of puns there. Yeah.
1: Whoa, yep. <laughs> that was from the back of the original 2000 DVD box. Wow. Nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> because um, if you can believe it. Yeah,
0: I can believe it. I I won't um. I won't give away the movie we're about to talk to next, but just looking at, um, when you texted me of the, the last two movies for, (laughs) for the month, because of the context of all the other movies playing, I, it it just, this title, um, chicken run completely made me think of, of some kind of like gritty, like seventies, like car, um, chase movie (laughs) or something. And like, I, I had no idea that I've seen this movie. Um, It's been a minute, but I uh, just kind of like forgot about it. I I know what's going to be interesting about revisiting it is how um, surreal and uncanny stop motion animation always is. So it's just kind of like a, a style that you don't get to see. Often enough to get ever get used to,
1: <laughs> and I'm always I always just love it, you know. Nightmare yeah. Before Christmas, Mad Monster Party, Rudolph the Red Nose. You know, I'm just I'm always down for stop motion, and this movie. You know, I remember when it came out, and I remember being way too cool for it. I I was a big fan of Wallace and Gromit in the 90s, and I just felt like, oh, this is the non Wallace and Gromit stop motion like they're not the characters aren't in it and I was just like too too old I was like trying to leave kids stuff behind Um, but I definitely saw it uh, reluctantly or something Um, but then revisiting it for this I was like man this holds up we didn't I didn't know how lucky I was at the time. This is really funny and the animation is fantastic, especially after watching Mad Monster Party last last month. I mean, it's just really cool to see stop motion on the big screen.
0: Yeah, isn't it a little bit more um like 3D modeled and it it definitely has its own unique kind of like um models that they're using for stop motion, right?
1: Yeah, I think it might be Claymation. Uh-huh. Um it has a signature look. Uh it's called the Ardman Studios. Um and they're all British. Uh, Nick Park, Peter Lord are the, the pair behind Wallace and Gromit and this this film. Um and it, yeah, I don't know the techniques that mm-hmm. they employed. Um but they seem to be uh very very uh, specific to the studio so it's a it's their style and it's the feature length version so and they do they knock it out of park it's really well done it it holds up you know this is and this is coming from somebody who's 32 years old like you know i was laughing it's funny Um, well and it's
0: got probably a signature like british humor that's always a little exotic and edgy for american audiences even if it's a family film
1: and I just love it. It's really cute and really weird and it's right. fun. And it and uh, and I, I didn't realize also that the plot of the movie is a spoof on The Great Escape from 1963 with John Sturges, which I totally wasn't familiar with when I when it originally came out. And now I've seen it a couple of times and it's just funny to me to see chickens trying to escape from a farm um, and the way, way it's also aged, like, um, you know, just the whole concept of animals trying to fight back um you know we live in a vegan world we live in an animal rights world i think it's really cool the way that you know we talk a lot about how some movies haven't aged super well this movie is aged fantastically well
0: yeah, this would pair well with the Orca <laughs>
1: summer event.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: and it's a little joke on Thanksgiving coming from my general manager. So this was her idea. And just chicken, turkey, Thanksgiving. It was yeah. just sort of a, a fun one to well, do.
0: Well, it's nice. Obviously, you um, the programming is always pretty uh, diverse for like families. and I mean, there's usually something throughout the month that is more accessible to uh uh, to kids and things like that so this totally. is it's good to have uh, especially that week when i guess uh, kids will be out of school yeah and people it's a it's a great week to go to the the movie theater i guess this will play up through like thanksgiving day is that i think is it's that right? the day
1: before okay it's the 23rd thanksgiving day is the 23rd so it'll play through the 22nd and we will be closed on the 23rd that's per usual. Yep. Um, and this one, hasn't, I don't think I've ever seen it play before. You know, it's one again that people know of um, and people finally remember, but it doesn't play in town every year. So take advantage of this. People come out, see it with a crowd. It's going to be a lot of fun. Excellent. Yeah. Well, well, I'm, what are you going to follow that with? All right. So now <laughs> we've got our sixth movie of the month. Last but not least is the deep cut pick for November from Paul Schrader. 1979's hardcore. Nothing you have ever done, seen, or imagined can prepare you for the experience of hardcore. Turn it off. George C. Scott. Hardcore. Turn it off. Screen legend George C. Scott from The Day of the Dolphin gives a strong, sensitive portrayal of a deeply religious Midwestern businessman whose daughter, while on a church-sponsored outing, runs away from home. He hires an oddball detective, Peter Boyle, who learns that the daughter has been making cheap sex films. When the father realizes he can no longer trust the detective, he decides to hunt for his daughter himself. Paul Schrader, writer, taxi driver, rolling thunder, and director, blue collar, presents a powerful, unflinching glimpse into the dark, bizarre world of the pornography industry. Filmed on on location in porno establishments in San Francisco, San Diego, and Los Angeles, and featuring cinematography by Michael Chapman, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and music by Jack Nietzsche, Cruising the Exorcist
0: okay, so um that is a uh, uh, great counter programming <laughs> to chicken run and um a great way to cap off the month because I feel like um the kind of like bleak cynical um nihilistic uh, tone the trader captures <laughs> so well in his movies and his characters um will undoubtedly be on display here this will be. A new Schrader for me, but I know we talked a good amount about um, De Palma for for the um, blowout preview, mm-hmm. and like they, in my mind, kind of go hand in hand with just kind of the the subject matter and the character types that they that they like to um, take on in their work.
1: Yeah, they're definitely gritty filmmakers that have a lot of thought. Into their films, they're still active too, which is crazy. I know (laughs) it is crazy. Um, and for November, I really wanted to do a neo noir, so this is coming from the great 70s crime tradition, uh, along with the long goodbye, the French connection, the outfit. And I totally recommend people to dive into that world because there are just unending amounts of great 70s crime movies, and I hope to play more of them in the deep cut series. This will not be the last. and believe it or not, this actually wasn't my first pick for this month. Hmm. I wanted to do something that wasn't in the '70s because I've been playing so much '70s stuff. Um, it was in the '80s, and I've been playing stuff in the <laughs> '80s, so don't worry, don't freak out. It wasn't that far off. But I'm really, really excited to play hardcore. I've been wanting to play this movie for years and years and years, and it it went it jumped up to the top of my list recently, um, or I guess uh, second from the top. Because uh, it wasn't my very first pick. <laughs> well, you
0: really I'm, I'm, now. Uh, I'm dying to know what the the top one was. But I can to tell that. you secretly
1: yeah. because I can't publicly say it. <laughs> um, but it jumped up to the second place on my list uh, last November when Quentin Tarantino released his book Cinema Speculation. So we're going to do something a little bit different for this deep cut pick this month, where we're going to do a read along. So we're going to uh, watch the movie at the Academy on the big screen, the new restoration. It's going to look awesome. 4K restoration. It's going to sound great. Jack Nietzsche's score. It's going to be awesome. And then we're going to read the chapter on hardcore in cinema speculation. It's only 10, 12 pages. And in that, Tarantino makes some bold claims and we're going to have as he does (laughs) as he as he is tends to do from time to time and we're going to discuss them on a review episode. So I highly encourage other people to take advantage of this rare opportunity to see this uh, see the film in the theater. But then also to pick up a copy of uh, Quentin Tarantino's book and read that chapter um, and then listen to the review because it's going to be interesting to see what you drew as a first-time watcher uh, make of it. And then I really feel like you know new things have come to light given this, um, and it's interesting how to interpret the film now. I kind of feel like it's forever going to be changed in my mind.
0: Yeah, well, you definitely have my attention, and... I'm glad that, you know, obviously because I haven't yet seen it now, I just have this to look forward to. Like I have, I, I've talked about it before, but any kind of like narrative or homework I can give myself, like Noir Vember, for instance, like this framework yeah. of which to watch things through, this is like a mini version of that where I get to look forward to reading the the new, like new commentary on the movie we get to talk about it it just makes it even more of a special experience to look forward
1: to we're on an adventure i told yeah. you cinematic journey yeah. so here we are in november doing something a little different for the holidays and in just in case i haven't sold this movie enough i just want to reiterate what is so cool about this movie is that schrader just pretty much got cars blanche to just film in all of these different hardcore porno establishments in on, along the west coast so he's just going through all these crazy CD locations and filming them um whether it's authentically portrayed or not that's something that we will definitely talk about um but these are the real places um and it gets compared to cruising often mm-hmm. which uh william freekins film from 1980 um and that's sort of going into the uh uh gay leather bars Um, In New York, this is sort of the West Coast version going into the hardcore establishments. But it's all about um, George C. Scott trying to find his daughter and he's searching and searching and searching. And so to me, that's the ultimate noir, like I was talking at the beginning of the episode where it's it's a, a protagonist trying to dig through all these different locations and they're traveling sort of Alice in Wonderland, like Mm. where they have these different moments in these different locations where they interact with figures and people. What a
0: perfect guide. um, George C. Scott to take us on that. Like he is sort of the ultimate um, movie version of a traditional dad or a traditional like father figure square face like yeah just authoritarian sort of like no nonsense attitude i mean um it'll be interesting to see how he um what directions he takes this type of character in but that's just how i picture him in my head
1: as it's just kind of the movie dad figure and just like um Robert De Niro and Taxi Driver, it's kind of impossible to imagine somebody besides Robert De Niro. And it, it really just, he makes the role, the character and stuff. I really feel like this is this is George C. Scott just going to town. So if you really want to see what a great actor can do, come watch Hardcore because this is a beautiful performance. And um, I think it's really going to shake some people up.
0: Excellent. Well, I mean, that's an incredible slate. And then... Um, Post Thanksgiving, there'll be a little a little break.
1: Absolutely. So we're gonna have a couple weeks off and then we'll come back with some fresh December picks to take us into the holidays.
0: Beautiful. Um yeah. When one thing I didn't ask you about is um has Noir Vember been like a running tradition?
1: I started uh doing a formal Noir Vember series in twenty twenty one. Okay. And in that we played a lot of the big hits um, and I feel like 2022, I came out with a combination of some deeper cuts, and uh, I didn't want to re, you know redo any films and this one we're doing a smaller amount of films that are a little bit less played a little bit more on the fringe the and i'm i'm really excited to play them so i feel like noir noir fans have been waiting they know about no, noir November, and i'm really trying to cater to them and give them something that they're not going to find anywhere else Um, and uh, may never get played in town again god forbid but um, it's yeah they're definitely um, exciting to see on the big screen
0: excellent well i think that's all for our november preview if you want to subscribe to the podcast and um, get our review episodes as we publish them um, we're taking our time trying to really kind of um make those the best that we can make them with with clips and and audio so we're going to be releasing more review episodes as we go of course but um you can subscribe to the podcast by searching academy revival podcast on apple or spotify or any other podcast platform thank you doorman for um, once again guiding us on this cinematic journey it's been great
1: happy thanksgiving everybody thanks for listening